It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Regrets. But then again, the few to mention. How about you, listener? Too few to mention or too many? It's six-ish on Sunday night, and regret is my topic tonight on the Sharon Hour. That's with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX93.5. Ponder this from writer and regret studier, Catherine Schultz. Let's say, for instance, that you're on your way to your best friend's wedding and you're trying to get to the airport and you're stuck in terrible traffic and you finally arrive at your gate and you've missed your flight. You're going to experience more regret in that situation if you missed your flight by three minutes than if you missed it by 20. Why? Well, because if you miss your flight by three minutes, it is painfully easy to imagine that you could have made different decisions that would have led to a better outcome. I should have taken the bridge and not the tunnel. I should have gone through that yellow light. These are the classic conditions that create regret. We feel regret when we think we are responsible for a decision that came out badly, but almost came out well. Now, within that framework, we can obviously experience regret about a lot of different things. So let's start out by defining some terms. What is regret? Regret is the emotion we experience when we think that our present situation could be better or happier if we had done something different in the past. So in other words, regret requires two things. It requires, first of all, agency. We had to make a decision in the first place. And second of all, it requires imagination. We need to be able to imagine going back and making a different choice. And then we need to be able to kind of spool this imaginary record forward and imagine how things would be playing out in our present. And in fact, the more we have of either of these things, the more agency and the more imagination with respect to a given regret, the more acute that regret will be. What do we regret most in life? So top six regrets, the things we regret most in life. Number one by far, education. 33% of all of our regrets pertain to decisions we made about education. We wish we'd gotten more of it. We wish we'd taken better advantage of the education that we did have. We wish we'd chosen to study a different topic. Other very high on our list of regrets include career, romance, parenting, various decisions and choices about our sense of self and how we spend our leisure time, or actually, more specifically, how we fail to spend our leisure time. The remaining regrets, finance, family issues unrelated to romance or parenting, health, friends, spirituality, and community. So in other words, we know most of what we know about regret by the study of finance, But it turns out when you look overall at what people regret in life, our financial decisions don't even rank. They account for less than 3% of our total regrets. 
So if you're sitting there stressing about large cap versus small cap or company A versus company B or should you buy the Subaru or the Prius, you know what? Let it go. You're not going to care in five years. You're tuned to The Sharon Hour on Laguna's KX93.5. I'm Sharon James, playing a part of a TED Talk by Catherine Schultz, talking on the topic of regret. Here's hers. Like Johnny Depp and like 25% of Americans between the ages of 16 and 50, I have a tattoo. Some of you might know that in 1990, Johnny Depp got engaged to Winona Ryder, and he had tattooed on his right shoulder, Winona Forever. And then three years later which in fairness kind of is forever by Hollywood standards, they broke up. And Johnny went and got a little bit of repair work done, and now his shoulder says, why no forever? I first started thinking about getting tattooed in my mid-20s, but I deliberately waited a really long time, because we all know people who've gotten tattoos when they were 17 or 19 or 23 and regretted it by the time they were 30. That didn't happen to me. I got my tattoo when I was 29, and I regretted it instantly. And by regretted it, I mean that I stepped outside of the tattoo place, and I had a massive emotional meltdown in broad daylight on the corner of East Broadway and Canal Street, which is a great place to do it because nobody cares. And then I went home that night, and I had an even larger emotional meltdown, which I'll say more about in a minute. And this was all actually quite shocking to me, because prior to this moment, I had prided myself on having absolutely no regrets. Now, I made a lot of mistakes and dumb decisions, of course. I do that hourly. But I had always felt like, look, I made the best choice I could make given who I was then, given the information I had on hand. I learned a lesson from it. It somehow got me to where I am in life right now. And okay, I wouldn't change it. In other words, I had drunk our great cultural Kool-Aid about regret, which is that lamenting things that occurred in the past is an absolute waste of time, that we should always look forward and not backward, and that one of the noblest and best things we can do is strive to live a life free of regrets. This idea is nicely captured by this quote. Things without all remedy should be without regard. What's done is done. This seems like kind of an admirable philosophy at first, something we might all agree to sign on to, until I tell you who said it. Here's a spot out. Damn spot out, I say. Who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? What will these hands never be clean? That's Lady Macbeth, of course, via Shakespeare, through the mouth of Dame Judi Dench. It comes in the preface to that quote, What's done is done, within a famous out-damn spot speech. As Catherine Schutz pointed out, Shakespeare was always very good at getting to the nub of things. You're tuned to the Sharon Hour on Lagunas KX 93.5, and we're talking about regret, when regret is viable in this instance, experienced by Lady Macbeth, after deriding her husband for being a wuss, for regretting his part in murders, instigated by Lady Macbeth. No wonder men complain about not understanding women, Lady Macbeth is sleepwalking during her confessional, so you could say only in her subconscious does she acknowledge what she's doing. You see, her eyes are open. Aye, but their scents are shut. The smell of the blood. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. What's done cannot be. 
do experience profound regret around. What does that experience feel like? Well, we all know the short answer. It feels terrible. At the age of 22, I fell in love with my boss and I learned the devastating consequences. Like me at 22, maybe you fell in love with your boss. Unlike me though, your boss probably wasn't the president of the United States of America. That, of course, was the infamous Monica Lewinsky on her TED Talk about regret for, as much as anything, what caused her very public shaming and branding for the past couple of decades and probably the rest of her life. Regret is my topic on the Sharon Hour tonight. That's with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's one and only KX93.5. Here's more from Monica Lewinsky. At the age of 41, I was hit on by a 27-year-old guy. He was charming, and I was flattered, and I declined. You know what his unsuccessful pickup line was? He could make me feel 22 again. I'm probably the only person over 40 who does not want to be 22 again. Not a day goes by that I'm not reminded of my mistake, and I regret that mistake deeply. In 1998, after having been swept up into an improbable romance, I was then swept up into the eye of a political, legal, and media maelstrom like we had never seen before. Remember, just a few years earlier, news was consumed from just three places, reading a newspaper or magazine, listening to the radio, or watching television. That was it. But that wasn't my fate. Instead, this scandal was brought to you by the digital revolution. That meant we could access all the information we wanted, when we wanted it, anytime, anywhere. And when the story broke in January 1998, it broke online. 
It was the first time the traditional news was usurped by the internet for a major news story. A click that reverberated around the world. What that meant for me personally was that overnight I went from being a completely private figure to a publicly humiliated one worldwide. I was patient zero of losing a personal reputation on a global scale almost instantaneously. This rush to judgment enabled by technology led to mobs of virtual stone throwers. Granted, it was before social media, but people could still comment online, email stories, and of course, email cruel jokes. News sources plastered photos of me all over to sell newspapers, banner ads online, and to keep people tuned to the TV. Do you recall a particular image of me, say, wearing a beret? Now I admit I made mistakes, especially wearing that beret. <laughs> but the attention and judgment that I received—not the story, but that I personally received—was unprecedented. I was branded as a tramp, tart, slut, whore, bimbo, and of course that woman. I was seen by many. But actually known by few, and I get it. It was easy to forget that that woman was dimensional, had a soul, and was once unbroken. You're listening to a TED Talk by Monica Lewinsky, brought to you now on the Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX 93.5, as part of my topic tonight on regret. When this happened to me 17 years ago, there was no name for it. Now we call it cyberbullying and online harassment. In 1998, I lost my reputation and my dignity. I lost almost everything, and I almost lost my life. Let me paint a picture for you. It is September of 1998. I'm sitting in a windowless office room, inside the office of the Independent Council, underneath humming fluorescent lights, listening to the sound of my voice. My voice on surreptitiously taped phone calls that a supposed friend had made the year before. I'm here because I've been legally required to personally authenticate conversation. Scared and mortified, I listen. As I prattle on about the flotsam and jetsam of the day, as I confess my love for the president, as I listen to my sometimes catty, sometimes churlish, sometimes silly self, being cruel, unforgiving, uncouth, listen deeply, deeply ashamed to the worst version of myself, a self I don't even recognize. A few days later, the Star report is released to Congress, and all of those tapes and transcripts, those stolen words, form a part of it. That people can read the transcripts is horrific enough, but a few weeks later, the audio tapes are aired on TV, and significant portions made available online. 
The public humiliation was excruciating. Life was almost unbearable. This was not something that happened with regularity back then in 1998. And by this, I mean the stealing of people's private words, actions, conversations, or photos, and then making them public. Public without consent, public without context, and public without compassion. Fast forward 12 years to 2010, and now social media has been born. The landscape has sadly become much more populated with instances like mine, whether or not someone actually made a mistake. And now it's for both public and private people. The consequences for some have become dire, very dire. We used to be able to do our regret in private. Now it's so often done in public because we've made our private lives public wittingly with things like Facebook and all the other social media sites. They allow us to shape our lives and position ourselves a certain way, but they also allow others who may not even know us or have our best interests at heart to be as cruel as they want to about us. So, what once motivated us to share in loving ways. Can be the cause of our regret. Regret is the topic on my Sharon Hour tonight. That's with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX 93.5. You're currently hearing from Monica Lewinsky, someone with both cause and unique perspective on regret. Cruelty to others is nothing new, but online, technologically enhanced shaming is amplified, uncontained, and permanently accessible. The echo of embarrassment used to extend only as far as your family, village, school, or community. But now it's the online community too. Millions of people, often anonymously, can stab you with their words, and that's a lot of pain. And there are no perimeters around how many people can publicly observe you and put you in a public stockade. I was on the phone with my mom in September of 2010. And we were talking about the news of a young college freshman from Rutgers University named Tyler Clementi. Sweet, sensitive, creative Tyler was secretly webcammed by his roommate while being intimate with another man. When the online world learned of this incident, the ridicule and cyberbullying ignited. A few days later, Tyler jumped from the George Washington Bridge to his death. He was 18. My mom was beside herself about what happened to Tyler and his family, and she was gutted with pain in a way that I just couldn't quite understand. And then eventually, I realized she was reliving 1998, a time when she sat by my bed every night, when she made me shower with the bathroom door open, and reliving a time when both of my parents feared that I would be humiliated to death, literally. Today, too many parents haven't had the chance to step in and rescue their loved ones. Too many have learned of their child's suffering and humiliation after it was too late. Every day online, people, especially young people who are not developmentally equipped to handle this, are so abused and humiliated that they can't imagine living to the next day, and some tragically don't. 
research determined humiliation was a more intensely felt emotion than either happiness or even anger. Reason enough to regret obsessively, eh? Regret is the topic on my Sharon ad night. That's with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX93.5. We don't regret in private anymore. Anything small or large we do wrong seems to appear on the internet, and everyone seems to feel free to comment on it. Comment is solicited always by liking something or giving your opinion on entertainment gossip shows. Do you think he, she did wrong, deserves to be dumped, or worse? For nearly two decades now, we have slowly been sowing the seeds of shame and public humiliation in our cultural soil, both on and offline. Gossip websites, paparazzi, reality programming, politics, news outlets, and sometimes hackers, all traffic in shame. It's led to desensitization and a permissive environment online, which lends itself to trolling, invasion of privacy, and cyberbullying. Snapchat, the service used mainly by younger generations, which claims that its messages only have the lifespan of a few seconds. You can imagine the range of content that that gets. A third-party app, which Snapchatters use to preserve the lifespan of the messages, was hacked. And 100,000 personal conversations, photos, and videos were leaked online to now have a lifespan of forever. Jennifer Lawrence and several other actors had their iCloud accounts hacked, and private, intimate nude photos were plastered across the internet without their permission. One gossip website had over five million hits for this one story. In this culture of humiliation. There is another kind of price tag attached to public shaming. The price does not measure the cost to the victims, but the profit of those who prey on them. This invasion of others is efficiently and ruthlessly mined, packaged, and sold at a profit. A marketplace has emerged where public humiliation is a commodity and shame is an industry. How is the money made? Clicks. The more shame, the more clicks. The more clicks, the more advertising dollars. We're in a dangerous cycle. The more we click on this kind of gossip, the more numb we get to the human lives behind it. And the more numb we get, the more we click. All the while, someone is making money off of the back of someone else's suffering. But then, so who exactly do we blame? We can't always blame the media, who are primed to give us what we want. I'm Sharon James, playing devil's advocate on this Sharon Hour on Laguna's KX93.5 tonight. If I ask, are some of us bringing this on ourselves? And so do you. That's entertainment. That's entertainment. I'd be happy to humiliate myself. I'd be happy to bend over just to be somebody. Be 
Okay, so we mock this desperate need to be seen at any price. Often food for regret later. Should we be more understanding? Regret is my topic on the Sharon Hour tonight with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX93.5. And you're currently listening to Monica Lewinsky, who's found ample cause for it. Researcher Brene Brown said, and I quote, shame can't survive empathy. Online, we've got a compassion deficit, an empathy crisis. We need to return to a long-held value of compassion, compassion and empathy. I've seen some very dark days in my life. It was the compassion and empathy from my family, friends, professionals, and sometimes even strangers that saved me. Even empathy from one person can make a difference. Even in small numbers, when there's consistency over time, change can happen. In the online world, we can become upstanders. To become an upstander means, instead of bystander apathy, we can post a positive comment for someone or report a bullying situation. Trust me, compassionate comments help abate the negativity. We talk a lot about our right to freedom of expression, but we need to talk more about our responsibility to freedom of expression. We all want to be heard, but let's acknowledge the difference between speaking up with intention and speaking up for attention. Showing empathy to others benefits us all and helps create a safer and better world. Just imagine walking a mile in someone else's headline. Anyone who is suffering from shame and public humiliation needs to know one thing. You can survive it. I know it's hard. It may not be painless, quick, or easy, but you can insist on a different ending to your story. Have compassion for yourself. We all deserve compassion. So do we all. At what point does compassion end? At what point do we feel legitimately disgusted? It's a question of degree, right? I mean, the Charlie Mansons of this world, should we feel compassionate towards them? At what point does compassion give way to justified disgust? You're tuned to the Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX93.5. I'm talking tonight about regret, and if or when that emotion is appropriate. As Catherine Schultz said earlier, some things we should regret. I think it's Charlie Manson's refusal to show regret that denies him our compassion. He's been up for parole several times and just rants against society doesn't seem to acknowledge his own culpability, but then he's a psychopath. Then do we feel compassion for him for being that? Actually, I think Manson was probably more of a sociopath. I always think the psychopath is the killer, crazy, criminal one, but in fact, psychopaths can have loving relationships, be charming, hold down jobs, be trustworthy, but underneath They have a hard time forming real emotional attachments. And they see other people as their pawns. They're crafty. They don't want to get caught in any base or criminal activity. And they have contingency plans for everything they do. They are very manipulative and often quite clever. It's their nature, as it is with sociopaths, to want to flaunt the law, to lie, to deceive, to be irresponsible. 
whether it's about financial obligations or the safety of others. One of the bigger differences is psychopaths tend to be born and sociopaths built through environmental factors such as, for instance, childhood traumas or neglect. Sociopaths generally are less overtly caring or loving. Of course, neither of them are truly caring or loving, but a sociopath doesn't even go to the lengths of presenting himself as anything other than he or she is. They're much less premeditated in their behaviour and much more reactive. They're subject to violent outbursts and uncontrollable anger. The main difference, I believe, is that a psychopath can be unaware of their own actions. They can disassociate, whereas a sociopath remains aware but doesn't care. Neither suffers much regret, the one because they've disassociated, the other because they're psychologically incapable of it. Regret is my topic on tonight's Share Now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX935. Sounds like Manson was more of the sociopath created rather than the sociopath born. Although since the father was an unknown quantity, we don't know that for sure. His mother was an unlikely prostitute, surprising neighbours and those close to her when they found out. Charles Manson only lived with her for a short period. He was dumped off with an aunt and uncle, but in a bucolic setting, in a nice middle-class home. Occasionally his mother took him back, but once he'd been in and out of reform schools, which she was from a very young age, she again didn't want him. So, a serial killer, or at least, and maybe more monstrous, the instigator of serial killings, made or born... We'll never know. And, of course, there may be those of you who don't actually know who Charlie Manson is. He's 80 now, can you believe? He instigated the notorious killing spree in the midst of the swinging 60s of celebrities Roman Polanski and his then-pregnant wife Sharon Tate, as well as other killings done by his cult following of young disaffected women including an heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune, Abigail Folger. Incidentally, he also offered up his cadre of women as prostitutes to the likes of the Beach Boys and other celebrities and non. He was a white supremacist. He thought the civil rights movement would create an unsustainable civil war. He carved an X into his forehead to symbolize his withdrawal from society and demanded that his clique of women did the same. It ultimately morphed into a swastika. Lovely guy all around. And I won't go into the details of the killings because they're sickening. But you will hear two of the women, now grown women, who were sentenced to death for these killings until the Supreme Court removed the death sentence and the punishment was changed to life. You'll be hearing clips from a Diane Sawyer documentary here on tonight's Sharona with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX93.5. My topic tonight, regret, or in Manson's case, lack thereof. Without empathy, there can't be regret, and without shame, there can't be empathy, I think. But the question is sometimes, who owns the shame? As a teen, Manson got a ten-year sentence for attempting to cash a $43 treasury check and bucking parole. He did seven and a half of those years, 
and was still only 19 when released. In other words, his education was almost entirely within the prison system, and the prison system was his only true family growing up. After release, he found his way to Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco at the height of the hippie flower power movement. Roger Smith was his parole officer around that time. You may recall a song, the lyrics of which were, if you come to San Francisco, you better wear a flower in your hair. By 1967, if you came to San Francisco, you needed to wear a 45 in your belt. It had changed that fast. It was a scene where if you grew your hair and talked to talk, you fit in. When he came out, he initially told me that there was nothing I could do, that he could go back to prison. He was not afraid of it. He was not going to do parole if parole was going to be uh, onerous. He was clearly an antisocial personality. He was superficial, he was glib, and he was very adaptable. He sized up people, I think, fairly quickly and fairly accurately. I think that's a skill you learn in prisons. We, we were so locked in, like, it's just like, okay, okay, this must be this, and when you just become more, more like a robot. When there was a, an attempt to tie everyone up, Eventually, Abigail Folger started to get herself undone, and she took off. I ran after her with an upraised knife, and we went out through a back door out onto the lawn. And I started stabbing her. I, I, I ran her down, and I began to stab her. I remember her saying, I'm already dead. After the killing of this one couple, the police arrived on the scene to find they'd been stabbed 67 times amidst the carnage written in the couple's blood all over the walls was death to pigs. The couple was the grocer and his wife, unknown to their assailants, it should be added. I said, if you're going to do something, leave something witchy, just like I would tell you. If you're going to do something, do it well and leave something witchy. Leave a sign to let the world know that you were there. Have a good day. <laughs> It'd be funny if it weren't so hideous. You're tuned to the Sharon Hour. I'm Sharon James. This is Laguna's one and only FM radio station, KX93.5. I'm talking tonight about regret when it's appropriate I would say the Manson killings would be one of those instances. Pat Kremwinkle, now middle-aged, wishes they hadn't commuted her death sentence. If anything, the, old, the older I get, the harder it is. I took away all that life. Every day I wake up and know that I'm a destroyer of the most precious thing, which is life. And living with that is the most difficult thing of all. And I do that because that's what I deserve, is to wake up every morning and know that. He was not Jesus Christ or Satan. He was a very odd, bizarre, high-energy, little antisocial who had some poor, confused, middle-class dropouts who decided to follow him and he got into a situation where he had enormous power over these people and he pulled it all together into this incoherent hateful kind of plan 
and there was no one there to say, Charlie, girls, this is crazy. You know, it didn't happen overnight. He spent a lot of time taking middle-class girls and remolding them. When I got out, all your children would come to me because they never had anybody to tell them the truth. I never broke nobody's will. I never told anybody to do anything other than what they wanted to do. I said, you do what's best for you. You do what you feel is right. You do what you think is right. Now, whatever you think is right, it's got to be right. All I'm doing is I'm walking with, the, I'm walking with you. I'm walking in line with you, and I'm holding the line with you. What you do is up to you. It's got nothing to do with me. Oh, Charlie's just absolutely lying. There wasn't one thing done that was even allowed to be done without his expressed permission. You know, I, I take offense to the fact that years later Manson doesn't own up to his share in this. I take offense to that. I take responsibility for my part. And part of my responsibility was helping create him. Every once in a while I get letters from children. And um, they seem to think that what we did is all right. There is nothing nothing that we did that is all right nothing regret in that case i think you'll agree listener is a social imperative regret is my topic on tonight's sharon hour with me sharon james on lagunas kx 93.5 let's get back to Catherine schultz whose only little crime as far as she was concerned was getting herself a tattoo hear what she has to say about how regret manifests itself amongst the less sociopathic within our ranks. Turns out that regret feels awful in four very specific and consistent ways. The first consistent component of regret is basically denial. When I went home that night after getting my tattoo, I basically stayed up all night and for the first several hours there was exactly one thought in my head and the thought was, make it go away. This is an unbelievably primitive emotional response. I mean, it's right up there with, I want my mommy. We're not trying to solve the problem. We're not trying to understand how the problem came about. We just want it to vanish. The second characteristic component of regret is a sense of bewilderment. So the other thing I thought about there in my bedroom that night was, how could I have done that? What was I thinking? It's this real sense of alienation from the part of us that made a decision we regret. We can't identify with that part. We don't understand that part. And we certainly don't have any empathy for that part, which explains the third consistent component of regret, an intense desire to punish ourselves. That's why in the face of our regrets, the thing we consistently say is, I could have kicked myself. The fourth component here is that regret is what psychologists call perseverative. To perseverate means to focus obsessively and repeatedly on the exact same thing. The effect of perseveration is to basically take these first three components of regret and put them on an infinite loop. So it's not that I sat there in my bedroom that night thinking, make it go away. It's that I sat there and I thought, make it go away, make it go away, make it go away, make it go away.
You're listening to The Sharer Now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's one and only listener-supported, member-supported public FM radio station, KX93.5. My topic tonight is regret, and I'm playing you part of a TED Talk by Catherine Schultz, who talks and writes on that subject. She just laid out the four stages of regret. First, denial. Second, bewilderment. How could I have done that? Third, a desire to punish ourselves, even if only to metaphorically kick ourselves. And the fourth, obsessing infinitely about the thing we regret. But I want to suggest that there's also a fifth one. And I think of this as a kind of existential wake-up call. That night in my apartment, after I got done kicking myself and so forth, I lay in bed for a long time, and I thought about skin grafts. And then I thought about how much as travel insurance doesn't cover acts of God, probably my health insurance did not cover acts of idiocy. In point of fact, no insurance covers acts of idiocy. The whole point of acts of idiocy is that they leave you totally uninsured. They leave you exposed to the world and exposed to your own vulnerability and fallibility in face of, frankly, a fairly indifferent universe. This is obviously an incredibly painful experience. And I think it's particularly painful for us now in the West, in the grips of what I sometimes think of as a control-Z culture. Control-Z like the computer command, undo. We're incredibly used to not having to face life's hard realities in a certain sense. We think we can throw money at the problem or throw technology at the problem. We can undo and unfriend and unfollow. And the problem is that there are certain things that happen in life that we desperately want to change, and we cannot. Sometimes instead of control Z, we actually have zero control. And for those of us who are control freaks and perfectionists, and I know whereof I speak, this is really hard because we want to do everything ourselves and we want to do it right. Now, there is a case to be made that control freaks and perfectionists should not get tattoos. And I'm going to return to that point in a few minutes. But first I want to say that the intensity and persistence with which we experience these emotional components of regret is obviously going to vary depending on the specific thing that we're feeling regretful about. So for instance, you know, you can accidentally hit reply all to an email and torpedo a relationship. Or you can just have an incredibly embarrassing day at work. Or you can have your last day at work. And this doesn't even touch on the really profound regrets of life. Because, of course, sometimes we do make decisions that have irrevocable and terrible consequences, either for our own or for other people's health and happiness and livelihoods and, in the very worst-case scenario, even their lives. Now, obviously, those kinds of regrets are incredibly piercing and enduring. I mean, even the stupid reply-all regrets can leave us in a fit of excruciating agony for days. So how are we supposed to live with this? I want to suggest that there's three things that help us to make our peace with regret. And, and the first of these is to take some comfort in its universality. If you Google regret and tattoo, you will get 11.5 million hits. The FDA estimates that of all the Americans who have tattoos, 17% of us regret getting them. That is Johnny Depp and me and our 7 million friends. And that's just regret about tattoos. We are all in this together. The second way that we can help make our peace with regret is to laugh at ourselves. Now, in my case, this really wasn't a problem because it's actually very easy to laugh at yourself when you're 29 years old and you want your mommy because you don't like your new tattoo. But it might seem like a kind of cool or glib suggestion when it comes to these more profound regrets. 
I don't think that's the case, though. All of us who've experienced regret that contains real pain and real grief understand that humor, and even black humor, plays a crucial role in helping us survive. It connects the poles of our lives back together, the positive and the negative, and it sends a little current of life back into us. The third way that I think we can help make our peace with regret is through the passage of time, which, as we know, heals all wounds, except for tattoos, which are permanent. Still with the tattoo, Catherine Schultz, if that's your biggest regret in life, you're doing fine. Regret is the topic of my Sharon Hour tonight. That's with me, Sharon James, on Lagunas KX93.5. Let's hear more from writer and speaker on this topic, Catherine Schultz, still lamenting her tattoo, which is actually a totally innocuous drawing of a compass. When other people see my tattoo, for the most part, they like how it looks. It's just that I don't like how it looks. And as I said earlier, I'm a perfectionist. So let me reassure you about something. Some of your own regrets are also not as ugly as you think they are. I got this tattoo because I spent most of my 20s living outside of the country and traveling. And when I came and settled in New York afterwards, I was worried that I would forget some of the most important lessons that I learned during that time. Specifically, the two things I learned about myself that I most didn't want to forget was how important it felt to keep exploring and simultaneously how important it is to somehow keep an eye on your own true north. And what I loved about this image of the compass was that I felt like it encapsulated both of these ideas in one simple image. And I thought it might serve as a kind of permanent mnemonic device. Well, it did. But it turns out it doesn't remind me of the thing I thought it would. It reminds me constantly of something else instead. It actually reminds me of the most important lesson regret can teach us, which is also one of the most important lessons life teaches us. And ironically, I think it's probably the single most important thing I possibly could have tattooed onto my body, partly as a writer, but also just as a human being. Here's the thing. If we have goals and dreams and we want to do our best, and if we love people and we don't want to hurt them or lose them, we should feel pain when things go wrong. The point isn't to live without any regrets. The point is to not hate ourselves for having them. The lesson that I ultimately learned from my tattoo and that I want to leave you with is this. We need to learn to love the flawed, imperfect things that we create and to forgive ourselves for creating them. Regret doesn't remind us that we did badly. It reminds us that we know we can do better.
There's only one way to survive regret, and that's to live better in the future, more fully, more lovingly, more considerately. Regret is the topic of my Sharon Hour tonight, with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX93.5. Jenny, I'm sorry. Don't. Love means never having to say you're sorry. That's rubbish, of course, as a sentiment. But it does give me a chance to give a plug to dear Allie, Allie McGraw, who has come into town to do the play Love Letters, performing at the Wallace Annenberg Theatre in Beverly Hills. According to a mutual friend, she's wonderful in it. And she is a wonderful lady. She never thought of herself really as an actress. She was a stylist and a model who was sort of pushed into acting and hasn't done it in decades. But this particular play is an unstressful, joyful experience for her because she can actually read on stage. She's reading the love letters and do it opposite her old friend and co-star, Ryan O'Neill. Anyway, love is not never having to say you're sorry because we tend to hurt the people we love the most and we should regret that and be sorry about it and let them know we're sorry about it when it happens. Ali says, had you been a bigger, more powerful star at the time, those words, love means never having to say you're sorry, would probably never have been uttered and become legendary. Here she is talking about it on Oprah a few years ago, brought you now on the Sharoner, and me Sharon James, on the Gunas KX 93.5. It makes no sense. Saying you're sorry isn't the deal. Changing your behavior is the deal. Love means you never have to say you're sorry means that if you really love me, I should feel that you're sorry and you should know that I'm sorry. Or it still makes no sense. I don't believe in mind reading. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You no, know, mind reading is, is from, has been for me one of the great unravelings of relationships. How come you didn't know what I felt? You know, that sort of expectation. I think we have to speak, in my case, English and say, here's what I want, please, and here's what I can't deal with. I, I was a career people pleaser. I sort of tried to guess what I thought you might like me if I did. And I, I, I mean, I, the whole thing is really about being real. And it's very hard to be authentic, I think. And, and it's the only real joy. Yeah. Did you, were you that way in your marriages too? Were you, were you a, a oh, pleaser? I was fake. And I don't mean that it came from a cruel place, but I didn't have the balls to say nicely, by the way, the truth. Yeah. And the courage to know that you may not get your way. Because mm -hmm. if two people are saying what they want and they don't agree, then how much better it is to find out then than 15 years later that didn't you always know that I wanted to mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. That's not a fair card to play. Everybody now wants to be a reality TV show. Oh. Everybody is fake themselves out <laughs> to the point where, they're, you know, in these conversations with people, it's happened to me sitting here, where they're so Botoxed that their face doesn't move. Terrifying. You, terrifi it's terrifying. And it's everybody's heartbreaking. Everybody's trying to, trying to hold on to what was instead of being present for what is. And what's even more scary, they're, they're recreating their idea of what was. Because yes. these poor creatures that have been completely remade out of fear at 30. I mean, one of the reasons I'm not shy about saying my age is I don't want to think that my, I should roll over and check out because 40 years ago I had a hit movie and now I'm living with my cat and dog in the mountains in Santa Fe, as if that's, you know, a step down. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I think the message women my age send to terrified 30- and 40-year-old women who are going, oh, my God, it's almost over. What a jip. 
Mm-hmm. What a chip. Because I mean, at 40, you're just starting to wake up, if you're lucky. What Oprah and Ali are talking about is the other side to regret. There's the regret you feel for something bad you've done, but then there's the regret you feel for something good you've been but are no longer. And they're both difficult to cope with. When you've been as famous and desirable as Ali in her prime, and then you're not that anymore, but you're still the same person, you're just perceived differently, it's a hard adjustment to make. You have to be extremely grounded and a smart and solid person and a decent human being, all of which apply to Ali McGraw. When everything's going well for you, there are byproducts to that too, that at the time can be taxing. Really, the only solution is to deal in the present. Let the past be the past. Move on to be the best, most productive, happiest, most generous person you can be. Let's get back to Ali McGraw on Oprah. Both women have been enormously famous, valued, lauded, applauded. Yet both women have nonetheless had their own personal challenges. Here they are from Oprah's show on tonight's Sharon Now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX 93.5. When I think of the salaries now, and most importantly, what we can do with them, mm-hmm. I would love to have a job that somebody said, you're going to do a film and it's $20 million. I, I mean, I couldn't wait to give all of that away. Okay, so when you uh, married Steve McQueen, I understand that you signed an agreement saying that if you ever got divorced, you would never ask for money. Yeah, I never re- have asked anybody for money. Do you it's regret just, that? No. You know, it all comes back to the same thing. It really is how, how do we want to be treated, and that's how we treat each other. And when this fame, when after Love Story, did you feel like you'd just been shot out of a cannon? I'd read that someplace. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, who could be ready for that? I mean, one day, I'm from New York, and one day I was walking around my city, mm-hmm. and the next day there were paparazzi, not the ghastly ones there are now, but mm-hmm. those days they, there was a handful staked out of the hotels following your baby carriage. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. terrifying. Was there any part of you that enjoyed the attention? Sure. Mm-hmm. Of course so. I really almost think that anybody that raises their hand to say, I'd, yeah, sure, I'll do that, mm-hmm. has to have a secret thing somewhere that it's going to feel good to have guys coming out of a manhole saying, wow, you look good today. Or, I mm-hmm. mean, it's on a bad day, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. Okay, so we, we did a show recently with Sybil Shepherd ah. and some other women, and we were talking about being the it girl and the most beautiful woman And we all know that, certainly, you were considered the it girl. I thought Sybil was so honest. She said she realized the moment that she stopped turning heads and no longer felt like the it girl. And and my producers told me that you've got a story. Oh, I've got a great one. There was this very well-intended charity called The Night of 100. It was actually 300 stars. Everybody you ever heard of. This is like ABC did this, right? Yeah, Yeah, ABC did it, and they featured... People we know and love, you know, all the big, big ABC stars and everybody you ever heard of. And we were given dresses to wear and we were given ways of walking out. And at the point that I was given the worst dress and I was like number 299 walking across Radio City, I got it. (laughs) Yeah. Really? Yeah. And you don't do... What did that feel like? I felt like a loser. You know, the ego is such a trick. I just lost myself in that moment of what did they think? Of course, they didn't think anything. They probably thought, oh, how horrible her dress is, or nobody was counting off the people. Mm -hmm. It was very self-centered. So I got really loaded that night. 
and woke up next to somebody I hadn't planned to spend the night with, if you really? want to know. Yeah. And in retrospect, I look at it as So such... is it that feeling of, gee, I'm not at the front of the line, at the back of the line, and my dress isn't the gorgeous one, I'm not the one that everybody's paying attention to? It was total ego, yeah. So maybe that's the key to feel the benefits of regret. You have to let go of ego. That's it for my Sharon Hour tonight. Have a wonderful week. Do check out all the station has to offer on kx935.com and do come back and listen to the Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX93.5 next Sunday night at 6.00.